Hey everyone, I'm Rob Lee, and this is Beloved Journal. Each week, I sit down with one of my friends as we discuss what it means to love and be loved. I'm not talking about romantic love, but the kind of love that leads us to empathy, compassion, and grace. Things our world desperately needs right now. Hey everybody, this is Rob Lee for Beloved Journal. Uh, today on the program, we have Dr. Jerusha Neal, who is the Assistant Professor of Homiletics at Duke University Divinity School. Uh, she has degrees from the University of Chicago and Princeton Theological Seminary. She is an ordained American Baptist minister with broad ecumenical experience. Uh, she served as a global ministries missionary to the Fiji Islands through the United Methodist Church, uh, teaching at one of the oldest theological seminaries in the Fiji, Fiji Nation. Uh, she has taught preaching there. She helped students there. It was an amazing time for her, and, and she spoke a lot about that during our interview today. Um, she has spent much of her ministry preaching in cross-cultural spaces and bridging communities, um, and I thought that was really important to see out uh, in the conversation that we had uh, today. She has a new book out that I really recommend, uh, The Overshadowed Preacher, which you can find anywhere where you get books, that asks the sticky question of what we mean when we say preaching is anointed. It challenges preachers to leave behind the false shadow and be overshadowed by the Spirit of God. I really felt this conversation was one of those moments where I was left speechless, which doesn't happen often, but I was so uh, enamored and intrigued by her work and by what she had to say. So without further ado, let's listen in. Dr. Neal, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. I'm glad to be here, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you have a new book out uh, that I have been pouring through and have enjoyed so very much. Uh, that, that centers around an overshadowed preacher uh, in, in our in our community, in our midst, in our history, in, in everything we hold dear. Um, why don't we start there and kind of talk about this overshadowed preacher, uh, Mary, the mother of our Lord, and uh, what brought you to want to study um, and really think about and contextualize for us this character in our history that we all think we know, uh, but maybe have missed <laughs> some of the nuance, as you, as you allude to in your book. Um, well, you, you know, when I, when I first started out thinking about Mary, I was interested in this puzzle that, that preachers often have, which is how can this work, this labor that they do, both be a work of God and yet something very ordinary that requires time and effort and, and uh, often blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> and, um, and so I started by thinking, you know, one of the, a powerful metaphor in scripture for how um, divine and human agency cooperate is, is in this nativity text about um, Mary's um, sort of miraculous um, pregnancy uh, that is caused by the spirit. She's overshadowed by the spirit. And yet it is, it plays out in this ordinary labor in time uh, that requires effort that marks her with scandal uh, that requires um, uh, uh, vulnerability on, on her part. Um, but very quickly, this sort of theological question, which is what it started with with me, turned much more personal uh, be, because I think deep down, the reason I found Mary interesting is, is I saw things 
that the Christian tradition has done with Mary over the millennia um, that I recognized as familiar in, in my own work as a preacher uh, in the pulpit. And here's what I mean by that. There are ways in which the tradition would make Mary less than fully human. Um, she would become larger than life, queen of heaven, a little more pure, a little more holy, a little more powerful um, in certain traditions. And then in other traditions, she would disappear. Nobody would talk about her. She just was sort of a face. And, and, and in my own work as a, as a young preacher, I was also a young mom, um, there was this sense in which I was also struggling to hang on to my full humanity um, in, in both its, you know, flawedness and also its faithfulness. I was working in congregations that also expected me to be a little more pure, a little more powerful, um, you know, bring home the gospel, save souls, you know, do the work, grow the church, all of this. And, and, and yet at the same time, there were big parts of me that I felt were disappearing in, in the pulpit. And, and I wanted to work on that. And my hunch was this. My hunch was that some of that um, connection between the, a sort of denial of the full humanity of the preacher, the denial of the full humanity of Mary, was related to our lack of really acknowledging the work of the Spirit in the work of bearing the word. And this grows out of um, Elizabeth Johnson has a beautiful book, Truly Our Sister, and she makes this connection between um, reclaiming the full humanity of Mary and reclaiming the work of the Spirit in Mary's life. And, and so this is really, this is how the journey began for me. So, I, you know, one of the things that you touched on that really resonated with me, you know, uh, as a preacher is in some ways it feels like I could walk into most traditions the way I look as a white cisgender man mm. and get to preach you know, do most things uh, without having the experience or the richness of the tradition behind me, uh, just simply by vocation of me being an ordained pastor uh, mm -hmm. or, or whatever, called by God, whatever you want to put it. Um, mm -hmm. However, that is not the case for some of my colleagues that went into field education sites while they were at Duke uh, with me or, or clergy friends who I have now who were walking into their churches who were female. It is almost as if, and that's not the only category, of course, but this, certainly in this case, it feels like um, the privilege is there. Uh, and you try to kind of unearth that and name it for what it is, which I think is really important in a time like this when privilege seems to be the 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 dominant characteristic of what we encourage in preaching uh at least you know in in in, in the field anyway now i know you know homiletics in a seminary is a little different but it just seems like there's some sense of i get to do this and it's really unfair that other people don't get to do this simply by vocation of what is viewed of them yes so uh, different bodies face different challenges i mean this is this is the Absolute truth, and and I and I wouldn't collapse those challenges into into the same category. Certainly, there's the stakes are different, the costs are different. Um, all of that's true. Um, one thing I I will name though is um, the, the longer that I've taught preaching, the more that I've discovered that these kinds of questions, while they impact bodies differently, um, there is cost for everybody when the work of the Spirit is not acknowledged. Um, and and I'll, I'll make the connection sort of in terms of, of whiteness. Um, 
you know, we've had this conversation about privileges that come with, with whiteness and the white bodies carry. Um, those are real and significant and um, deeply pro problematic, but they are also things that keep white bodies uh, from being fully human. Um, that there is a cost for all of us when we allow whiteness to determine who God is, what God is. I, I mean, that is, so, so absolutely you're right. This is a challenge to ecclesial structures that say the spirit can only be poured out in certain kind of bodies in certain kind of ways. I think the story of Mary blows that up. I mean, that's, I think, what the virgin birth is about. Yeah, don't think you've got this figured out. Don't think, you know, the way it's happened before is the way it's going to happen again. God can do what God will. Uh, and it probably will look scandalous to you. I mean, that's, that's one argument of the book. But there is also this argument of the book that I, I think there is this deep cry in preachers who come from privileged spaces and also um, marginalized spaces that ask this deep question about what does it mean for me to not live into the cultural expectation, but to really be faithful given the body that God has given me? What does it mean um, to, not, um, to not simply play the accepted script, um, but really engage a living savior in the work that I've been called to do? Uh, because frankly, to not do that is soul sucking. I don't care if you're a white cisgendered male or if you're, you know, if you're a body of another sort, um, this work will take you out if you do not have a living embodied relation with a living God. That's, that hits hard because I think sometimes in, in the work of preaching, after you've gotten out of the labs and the places that you feel a little safe, um, when you're in a church context and, and you hear someone grumble about your sermon that you thought was the spirit led, it can be very defeating. Um, but, but it also has to be a driver to continue to preach what you know is the gospel and what has been led to you by the Spirit. And I, I think the, the thing that underscores all of your book that is so fascinating to me is that so many preachers, sometimes myself included, have forgotten the work of the Spirit in crafting a sermon. Um, you know, I, I think of the, you know, the Magnificat being one of Mary's, you know, the, the, the sermon, the, the ultimate sermon, uh, and how that was certainly spirit led. Um, mm. and then I, you know, once you get into the rhythm of weekly preaching, sometimes you it's easy to forget, uh, that the work of the spirit is, 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 is both insular in you and then proclaimed by you. And so, so there is a, there's a tendency to just gloss over that as you're trying to get what needs to be said or what you think needs to be said onto paper to make people happy and comfortable. That's right. And, and, and not just in you and, and poured out of you, but also called out of you by the community. I mean, that, that example of Mary's profound because, um, because Elizabeth is the one that the spirit falls on and speaks the word that calls forth her song. I mean, so there's this, there's this very rich relationality. That, that flows through those nativity texts about how the spirit is at work bringing embodied relation between Christ and Mary, but also allowing her to really be sensitive, vulnerable to the, the voice of the spirit and the community that God has given her. Um, it's profound. I, I wanna step back just a minute. Um, and, and, you know, kind of trace how this, this argument works just briefly. The, the, um, you know, one of the things that um, 
I think is dangerous in, in the story of Mary where the tradition has gone wrong and, and why the work of the spirit is so important in that story is that if you don't really keep the work of the spirit central as the mediating force that allows Mary to bear Christ, there are ways in which her body begins to stand in for Christ's body and uh, in, in all kinds of ways. And, and I think that the sort of theological argument of the book um, gets back to that point, that there is something, and, and, I, and I really speak into the world of, of sort of Protestant homiletics and Protestant theology, there's something in our practices together where when we haven't kept the work of the Spirit central, that for all of the ways we say we don't believe this, in practice, there are ways in which we expect a preacher's body to stand in for the word's body. And by the word's body, I mean the living, resurrected, reigning, ascended Jesus, right? That we expect the preacher to play that role. And, and I think that that's deeply dangerous. I, I mean, I, I talk about three Ds in the start, you know, these three I'm alliteration, right? I'm a preacher. This sort of dangerous preachers who, be, who use that power abusively, disappearing preachers who kind of disappear into the role and feel like they have to be something other than what they are. Um, and then disillusioned preachers who, who because they, they, are, they become so, um, I think, nervous about standing in for the body of Jesus, they've stopped really believing that Jesus really will show up, that they can come with their ordinary labor, their ordinary words, and there will be a God bigger than them at work in the space. And um, yeah, and so that's for me, for me, the, the spirit is not just language about enthusiasm or, um, you know, zing. <laughs> what, what the spirit does is allow human bodies to be fully human, allow them to be more than statues and more than smoke, allow them particularity and relationality, both with God and with each other. So one of the things I'm wondering, uh, you know, as we're talking about this is, is over the course of, you know, this conversation uh, that you've been having, not only with Mary and uh, the study therein has been, the world seems to be falling apart. Um, in some ways, like first century Palestine, but you know, in other ways, very much different. Um, I'm wondering what you're telling your homiletics students you're preaching students right now as they are staring down uh, the one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime, um, as they are staring down a global pandemic, as they are staring down fires on the West Coast. I mean, the list could go on and on racial tensions uh, with too many black bodies and black people that have died and lay in our streets. And we, we don't, we, we can't even list the names anymore. It's so long, it seems. What, what, what are you telling your preachers in this moment? I mean, what, what are you telling your young preachers who are about to go out into churches and to proclaim a word uh, that, that is, that, that is God's word, um, as you talk about in your book and as we've talked about here? So I, I think that there are um, two very common responses to all of the um, the pressures that you name that we are, are under as a people, as a society. Um, one is to hide. And one is to become, I think, um, very rigid and, and control-oriented uh, in trying to, uh, I'm going to speak 
for a preacher that perhaps is preaching in a white congregation to sort of force a white congregation to see what they do not see and you know use every rhetorical means to be correct <laughs> and get them to be correct okay um I've been thinking a lot about this pandemic. And, and I think one of the things, I'm gonna move to racism in a second, but I'm gonna deal with the pandemic first. I think one of the things that it has laid bare in ways we should have been aware and yet in ways that our society is so good at, at forgetting is that we are connected to each other. Our bodies are, we're designed by God to be vulnerable to each other. So that when my neighbor is suffering, um, I actually am vulnerable because of that suffering, that illness. When the person who is checking my groceries um, uh, is sick, doesn't have health care, my health care is at risk. Okay. That's not socialism, that's science. And, and more than that, it is the creation of a, a God that refused to make us invulnerable to each other. Uh, now I'm, I'm gonna switch tracks. This week I've been reading um, Willie Jennings' new book on theological education after whiteness. Just profound. And one of the things he keeps talking about is communion. What does it mean for us to live in communion together? to actually believe that the pain in the body of this nation is something that we carry. Now, I want preachers to do more than be rigid and to be more than hide. I want them to preach in relation to the pain in our streets, the pain in our neighborhoods, the pain in our communities, and to keep reminding the church that, that this that this struggle uh, is their struggle, not because um, they know the same experience, because if it's a white congregation, they may not know that experience, but because perhaps they're implicated by that experience, complicit in it, that, that their, our body is sick, our communion is broken. And what would it mean to live into that uh, participatory relation with each other, to get a sense of that again? Um, I, I think the way you begin to fuel that, again, I mean, so in Acts, right, the Spirit does two things. The Spirit brings embodied relation with the risen Jesus, but the Spirit also begins to create this participatory identity that allows for difference within Christian community. Um, you know, what I, part of what I want to say is, is what Matthew Skinner said a few weeks ago when he just, you preach Acts during this time. This is a really good time to preach Acts um, because all of the issues are there. The issues of empire, the issues of uh, imbalances of power, uh, the suffering of God's people. What, what does it mean to really bear each other's burdens in this time? Um, and and to, to move past a desire for correctness, though I'm all, I mean, I want to be correct too, as much as anybody, but to move into a humility that says more than that, I, I want to walk in humility and communion with God's people, the protesters in the streets, those that are struggling. Um, and yes, that also means with the people in my pews with whom I disagree, but that doesn't mean that I 
pander, right? That means that I show up in my full self and, and I am vulnerable to their misinterpretation, um, but that I also don't just cut off and sort of, well, I don't, you know, <laughs> you don't, and, and uh, there, that's a deep, that's a hard thing to ask of preachers. And if you, you don't know that your identity is held and grounded in the promise of God through that whole process, um, it will exhaust you. And because there's no proof that you're right, it may not look like success. It may not even look like purity at the end of the day. I, I mean, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about the nativity texts is that Luke has no problem describing miraculous acts of God. You know, heavens open, angels show up, all of this stuff happens. But when he describes Mary's labor, it is utterly ordinary. This is stable, nobody's there. It doesn't look like anything she said about the angel. You know, she has no proof. She has nothing but people who have eyes to see the work of the Spirit and name it with her. <laughs> And it seems crazy to ask preachers to walk into that kind of vocation. But what I want to tell them is that the promise of that is that the work of the Spirit that happened in Mary is still going on, just as it was for ex-preachers, just as it is today when ordinary preachers get into ordinary pulpits with trembling hands and thumping hearts and risk saying that Christ really is Lord, Savior and Lord. And I'm, yeah. I, I'm going to save this podcast for like regular listening because I think <laughs> you're speaking to me as much as anyone else. Um, wow. I mean, like, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I have to remind myself is, as you do as an experienced and, and you know, far more seasoned preacher, uh, you know, I've preached in some pretty cool places. Um, I've gotten to preach internationally in Paris and, you know, across this country. But the work I do here at my church of a small group of people who gather on Sundays yeah. is as important as the work of the miraculous huge pulpits with the ornate windows and the uh, you know, I, and that's not to discount either one. It's just to say the work we do is so important. And I think sometimes, especially for me with like the ultimate imposter syndrome, it's easy, which preachers seem to have a dime a dozen today. Uh, you know, it seems to be uh, so prevalent that we're just like, you know what? I don't know what to say. I, I need to have this eloquent soliloquy of, of what I'm going to talk about so that everybody can can be uh, fed and, and learned and, and experienced in the work of the gospel. But maybe sometimes we just need to, to show our scars as, as maybe borrowing from Henry Nowen, but also from others, you know, the willingness to show up and just say, you know what, I don't have it all figured out, but I know a God who does. Yeah. I, um, there's, um, there's a moment late in the book where I talk about the fact that I, you know, preachers struggle uh, perennially, as you mentioned, with two things. They're afraid they're going to be exposed as a fraud, right? The imposter thing, or they're going to be erased as a human, <laughs> that somehow they're going to lose themselves in the role. 
And, and what I tell preachers is it is not your job. God is not asking you to be exposed as a fraud, and God is not asking you to be too erased as a human. God is asking you to be exposed as a human. And this is why, not because your scars have salvific power, <laughs> but because your body testifies to the work of Christ in the world. Your body is an eschatological site by the work of the Spirit of where Christ is doing work, transformative work, in and through you, and in and through your community. And so for you to show up fully human means that your body actually becomes a testimony to a body that is greater than yours. Your body's not the point. You know, Christ's body's the point. But, but if you don't show up, you, the, that body is not born, mediated through the power of the Spirit in, into the world in a way that people can see. And that's, uh, that's a tragedy. And, and ultimately, it is dangerous. Because something is getting mediated if he isn't getting mediated. <laughs> the well, body of tradition. Or, right, yeah. right. Well, yeah. let me ask you this. We've talked a lot about preachers. Both yeah. of us are preachers. We do this. Uh, let's translate this to a congregational aspect for a second, mm -hmm. recognizing that they ultimately do a lot of the work, too, uh, yes. when, when, when all of us either fail or, or they have to do some legwork to get done what needs to be done. Uh, you know, what, what, what would you say to a congregation uh, who might be struggling with hearing sermons right now uh, because of the pandemic? What would you say to this congregation who's frustrated with their pastor? Uh, you know, not that any church would ever be frustrated with their pastor, but you know, <laughs> what, what, would, what would you say to a congregation or to a lay person who's thinking, gosh, this is great, this is great for preachers, but I need some, some stuff for me too. I need this on the ground work done for me as well. So, so you know what's really lovely for me about using Mary as a metaphor for preachers is that um, for, for much of Christian tradition, um, she's also been a metaphor for what faithful lay people look like. Um, I mean, it, it, that was sort of intentional on my part. I kind of want to muck around with that divide between clergy and laity and show the ways that Mary is experiencing the risen Jesus in the way that acts Acts as preachers are experiencing the risen Jesus and the apostles do later. Um, I, I was just recently, I, I brought up the point about Elizabeth earlier because I was, I was talking over email with a, a dear friend of mine um, who recently retired from pastoral work. And she said to me, you know, she says, are my days of being Mary gone? You know, she says, I feel like maybe now I'm, I'm the Elizabeth in the wings and encouraging other Marys. And um, I think that would be the wrong point to take from this book. Uh, if, if Acts is really right, that the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, it means that there is a way in which every disciple, everyone who says, I am a servant of the Lord, can experience this embodied relation with Christ, played out in different ways through different vocations. But the kind of things I talk about in the book, the practices of vulnerability, the practices of dependency, the practices of discernment, um, those aren't just played out in the pulpit. Those are played out in the ways in which we interact on committees, in the ways in which we interact in the grocery store, in the ways in which we interact with our families, in the ways in which we show up to the polls, in the ways in which we uh, stand in the streets and shout for justice. Uh, I mean, absolutely, uh, preaching is not just done in the pulpit. Well, and preaching's not just done locally here in the United States. 
um, which I think is a, a common misconception among many preachers. Some of the best of them assume that just because we're here, we've got the, the, the kind of the corner store of preaching. Mm. Uh, you spent some time outside of this country uh, uh, at a seminary doing much of what you're doing now, teaching and, and, and administering it. You know, uh, I, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, what are the people in Fiji where you worked uh, kind of thinking and viewing the Christian church in the United States right now and more broadly the United States. I mean, obviously people here think we're the, the bell of the ball and kind of the, the front uh, runner of everything. And, you know, it was astounding to me personally on a note to when I went to preach in Paris to realize that they don't talk about us all the time. Like, you know, we think we kind of in our self-centered mindset, but I'm sure the conversations come up. So I'm curious what people that you've talked to people that you've interacted with, are thinking of the Christian church here in the United States? So um, uh, I, will, I will not try to speak for the Fijian church because there are all manner of uh, perspectives <laughs> on this issue, as you can imagine. I will speak to what the former president of the Methodist Church in Fiji said to me as I was leaving, because uh, I think it is, is relevant. Um, Fiji is a country where 60 villages are being um, in the process, in the queue for being relocated because of rising tides, um, which is a huge loss in Fiji. It lost anywhere, but particularly in Fiji, because this is land that is deeply connected to ancestors, you know, that go back before sort of recorded history. Um, and, you know, before we left, he looked at me and he said, um, please, when you go back, tell people that climate change is real. Tell them. Um, so, I mean, that I will do. Um, I, I will also say this. Um, one of the most humbling and important lessons for a long, young homiletician uh, with a newly minted PhD is to go to a place um, where the rhetorical systems and structures of how preaching happens and how texts are exegeted, what texts matter and what texts don't as much, you know, um, are so completely different than the ground on which I stand. Um, one of the things this book does is it interrogates the way uh, preaching rhetoric has been taught. And, and, and the preaching rhetoric, the bodies of preachers have been formed into very Western kind of standards. And, and one of the things that teaching preaching in, in Fiji taught me was just how much I didn't know. Um, the way one uses one's eyes is different in Fiji. The way one looks at the Hebrew scriptures and the Old Testament is different in Fiji. The way one reads Paul is totally different in Fiji. I mean, it, they're just... Um, and that was revelatory and helpful. <laughs> you know, what the role means, how the body's used. Because all of a sudden, it reminds me that there are these forms, structures in theological education that also have become rigid and hidden. We don't even see them anymore. And what would it mean to make those permeable and vulnerable and relational and open to the work of the Spirit and difference with our brothers and sisters around the world? So this is about the bodies of preachers. It's also about this broader question about the tradition of the church, whatever that is, right? And, and about the body um, 
uh, of theological education. What, what does that mean? What does that formative work look like when it is really humble and, and open to the work of the Spirit? You know, I think so many of our churches don't even view in the laundry list of things we're talking about. Climate change is a theological issue. So I'm really grateful that you raised that because I think that, um, in fact, some of us, you know, in the United States, remember, you know, uh, the, some of the Secretary of Interior during the Reagan administration who claimed that we had dominion over this world. So we, you know, I mean, we are very complicit um, in not caring for a climate that is hurting so badly. That's right. It is very humbling to see Christian brothers and sisters in Fiji fasting and praying in, in deep, earnest commitment over months and years because of these rising tides and being acutely aware that perhaps the wrong people are fasting and praying. <laughs> I, I mean, not to say anybody's fasting and praying is inappropriate, but how different would it be if our churches were fasting and praying? How much differently might we be listening to the news? How much differently might we care about Paris Agreement? How much, how, how much differently, how, how differently would our investment be in this if we really felt the urgency and the anguish of our brothers and sisters that are being displaced and, and lived that out in everyday practices of faith? It's so very important. And I think one of the things that, that I've finally want to touch on with you is learning about self-care um, as a preacher. Um, one of the <laughs> things that means for me, uh, which I'm not always good at if I'm confessional, um, is the, uh, the art of Netflix or Hulu or um, whatever <laughs> streaming service you have. So I'm curious, we ask this of every beloved journal uh, interview uh, what are you watching right now that's really compelling you or, or making you think or just something you can watch when you're bored and during the pandemic and you want to just enjoy some TV so that we can watch it with you? I'll tell you my go-to thing right now, which is not particularly shiny. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, yeah. Um, but it's something my mother liked. I lost my mother two years ago, and um, when she, late in her life, she used to like the show Madam Secretary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watch that sometimes to feel close to her. I, um, I'll tell you what was on repeat. I want to get the name right. Um, oh, I don't have it with me. I don't have my phone. Um, there was a requiem that was written after the 2002 tsunami. Uh, is that right? Is that the year that happened? Um, it's sort of dedicated to folks that are victims of natural disaster. And someone recently sent it to me because it's a prayer to Mary. I don't pray to Mary, but if I did, this song was so, it spoke, I think, the grief of walking through one's homeland and feeling um, feeling displaced, even while you are in the place where you should feel secure. Mm -hmm. And I had that on repeat yesterday. I must have listened to it <laughs> 20 times. Um, it's a choral piece. 
I'll text you the name of it. Yeah, please do. So I can, you can put it up. Yeah, I'll link it. Um, that's actually been feeding me um, this week. Uh, it's a prayer for people who feel lost in the place that used to feel like home. And uh, yeah, I've been thankful for that. Dr. Jerusha Neal, you are such a gift, uh, not only uh, to the people who know you, but to the wider community that known as the church and beyond that, because you have given us uh, so much already. And uh, I am thankful. I'm thankful for this conversation. I'm thankful for, for you and for, for all you embody um, in the work of the church, but also just being a human and, uh, you know, uh, figuring out this life with us together. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. Thank you. It was great to be here, Rob. Hey, everybody. This is Rob again. Um, in honor of what Dr. Neal just mentioned with uh, the Requiem by Eliza Gilkeson, uh, we are going to play that song on our way out uh, in remembrance that the world is not as it should be. Uh, at the recording of this podcast, we have crossed one million deaths, uh, recorded deaths to the COVID-19 pandemic over 200,000 of those in the United States, and we recognize that we are all bound up in this together. Uh, whether it's the tragedy of the fires, whether it's the tragedy of racial tension or political tension or the pandemic, there is no escaping the fact that our mutuality is bound up with each other. Uh, so may we work together, may we work to be better, and may we find hope amidst the pain. Thank you so much for tuning in today uh, to Beloved Journal. Taken by the
Blunt Journal is produced by Stephanie Lee and hosted by Rob Lee. Our theme music is by Mipso, the best band in the world. Connect with us on belovedjournal.com, and if you like what you heard, tell someone about it. 